right. Welcome into episode two of Exhibit A, the Oatly Vigman podcast. Uh, as you learned last week, we are uh, Canada's personal injury podcast, and Exhibit A is the play on words, E-H. I'm very pleased to announce or to, to introduce episode two, which has a, a wide-ranging interview with Brian Cameron. He's a partner at Oatly Vigman, and we touched on um, a whole bunch of different topics. Charles, what were some of the highlights that you remember? Um, you'll get to first meet and learn more about Brian Cameron, who's led a very interesting and exciting life, if I may. And for all the, the law students or uh, maybe lawyer hopefuls out there, you'll learn about Brian Cameron's number one tip to getting hired back. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all right. So without further ado, uh, we are pleased to uh, present to you the interview that uh, we did with Brian, and I hope you enjoy. Today, we are lucky to be joined by special guest Brian Cameron. Brian completed his LLB at Western University, and he was called to the bar in 2001. In 1999, he joined Oatly Vigman, and he became a partner in 2008. Due to the level of care and quality of service that Brian provides his seriously injured clients, he was named Outstanding Young Lawyer by his peers in the Ontario Trial Lawyers Association in May 2008. Brian has acted as co-counsel with James Bigman on several cases at the appellate level that have resulted in significant gains for plaintiffs involved in motor vehicle collisions in Ontario. Brian has been an invited speaker at conferences involving the advancement of personal injury law. Brian speaks to healthcare professionals about the changing nature of insurance in Ontario. Brian is a co-editor for the Oatla Notes, uh, The Litigator, and on other publications that are related to those. So, Brian, you had quite the unusual course to arrive at where you are now as a personal injury lawyer at Oatly Pigment. You were the only lawyer in our office without a high school diploma. You were in a rock band called Private Heart. And it wasn't until you were 29 years old that you went to the University of Western Law School. Can you tell us a little bit about your backstory here? <laughs> well, that's true. And before I get into that, Exhibit A is the name of this thing? That's right. Now, which one of you two creative geniuses came up with that? That's pretty good. Well, we have a marketing person for that. Oh, do we have a marketing? We had to go to marketing for <laughs> Exhibit A? Yeah, that's a, that's a focus group, skill-tested, uh, battle-tested name. Excellent. Uh, so and that's Exhibit A as in E-H. Oh, that's very We're good. Canadian for you, all you listeners out there. So let me address one thing first in all that, uh, the not having a high school diploma. Um, it's kind of weird. I do have a law degree, however. Uh, That's reassuring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what happened was when I was 14 or maybe 15, I was playing guitar a lot in clubs and I was playing late and I was touring with friends. First, I did... Uh, a stint uh, touring with people doing uh, sound and some lighting, some older friends of mine that had played in a band. I did that when I was maybe 15. It's a long time ago. I'm not sure on all the dates. Um, so I ended up dropping out of high school. I think I have 14 high school credits. Mm. And uh, most of those were marks that were abysmal in any event because I didn't care. I got really good math marks. Everything else I barely passed, if I passed at all, if I even showed up. So I did that for years. I played guitar professionally for about 10 years, give or take. Wow. And uh, that was touring all over the country. It's basically like if you could imagine a frat party that goes on for 10 years. That's kind of how it is. That was your life. Yeah, pretty much. I would travel in a van with uh, my best friends who are still my best friends to this day. 
the singer and guitar player are the only people that I I hang out with on any regular basis. And uh, they've been my best friends for in excess of 30 years now. Are they sub-professional musicians? or uh, One... Uh, one is he does movie scores and he teaches guitar and uh, does recording for people, that sort of thing. The other one, uh, the singer, Chris, he plays in a band like on the weekends, a couple, actually three different bands, I think, wow. and is mostly an IT guy for uh, some sort of medical uh, medical health clinic or something in the city. I'm not really okay. sure where it is, but, but he does that. And uh, we've stayed in touch over the years, but we spent th- those 10 years just, you get to hang out with your best friends and drink. And have zero responsibilities except for perhaps a one or a t- two sets a night. And uh, I didn't even have a driver's license till I was 27 years old because I didn't have to drive. And so when that came to an end, it sort of came to an end slowly because the recession around, uh, I want to say 92, 93, 94 in there, a lot of rock clubs started to close because we used to be able to play and did six, seven nights a week, we could do that for six months at a time if we wanted to. There was always places to work. There was tours out west, out east. I did a few of those. Uh, several U.S. states. I don't remember how many because I did drink a lot at the time. And I didn't have to drive, so I didn't care where I was. And uh, so I did that for a long time. And uh, then when I was about 27, 28, I decided, well, yeah, I want to go back to school. Because when you're doing that at 21, uh, it's fun. Yeah. When you get to 28... 27, no driver's license. I was not homeless, but I didn't really have a home. Right. I mean, I wasn't sleeping in the streets or any anything like that, but didn't really have a You didn't have home. any roots set up anywhere. No, not really. Um, you know, except for me and my parents' home. They were alive at sure. the time, but I didn't go there much. Uh, you know, I would see them on, uh, you know, vacations and holidays and stuff uh, because we were working a lot. You know, then I we started to play less and I had more time to think about what I wanted to do. Um, up to that point, it was a lot of fun, but like I said, it, it really was, I don't tell many stories from being on the road because nobody would believe it. Um, now, you, now you've got to tell us one. You've got a captive audience here. Well, I don't think I can on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of like anything you could imagine. It's, uh, just difference of scale. Uh, perhaps, uh, you know, somebody you might call a rock star, which we were not, uh, it's a, only a difference in scale. It's the same nonsense. You're doing drugs right, a lot, right. you're drinking a lot, and there's right. women everywhere. Yeah. So that's kind of what it's like to grow up. So when you're 23, that's fine. Um, when you get to be 28, and I had quit drinking the last couple of years mm. uh, because I just woke up one day and decided, okay, either I'm going to stop or I'm going to die. Mm. Wow. Um, not then. I wasn't. I had no health problems then. I right. just kind of went. Yeah. Right. I don't this like is this. This is not a good road. Yeah. 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 This is not a good road. Yeah. I can't do this at thirty-five or forty. Right. I can do this at twenty-six. And then I woke up one morning. Andy will appreciate this story. We used to go to a club. Andy's our sound guy, and he's a drummer as well. Yeah. So Andy under- will understand this when I when I tell him the story, and I think I've told Andy this story. We used to play this club in Thunder Bay that had a great in-house production. The PA and everything was great. It was very big. It was a fun club to play. What was it called? It was called uh, The In-Towner. And it was uh, the place we did our last show in 1996. Your farewell tour. Well, just farewell show. We had already broken up for about six months. And we went up there in 1996. That was the year I went to law school in September. And we went up in July, I think it was, or perhaps June, and played one final two-week stint just as a, a goodbye and to hang out with your friends and that sort of thing. But years before in that club, 
we used to get there on the Sunday night and there was a band that would be there from the previous week and we would get to watch them and we'd be there. And I would always get in our, a fight with our sound guy. I'd go, that guy mixed drums way better than you did because I hated the way our sound guy mixed drums. And uh, he would always tell me, he goes, Nock, you were loaded. What do you know? So I got there on the one Sunday night <laughs> and I decided, you know what, I'm not going to drink tonight because I know we're going to have this fight tomorrow. We do all the time. And when he says, you were loaded, I'm going to say, no, no, I was stone cold sober and your drum mix stinks. However, I got up the next day and I thought, I feel pretty good. I kind of like this a little better than most days I'm getting up. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't dehydrated. I wasn't staggering around the place trying to figure out where I left my shoes. Oh, my God. Uh, and then I decided I'm done. I just, I remember having that thought. I don't remember why. Mm. Uh, I've not been intoxicated since. Wow. I did, I have had the odd sip of scotch. Like, right. I'll do that every six months off of scotch. I'm not anti-alcohol, yeah, but yeah. I was done after that point. And then that's, by that point, I'd already gone to Laurier for two years consecutive, like through the summers and everything, starting about in 1994, or maybe it was the winter 95 term, whatever it was. And I I went in as a mature student because I didn't have a high school diploma. And they'll let anybody in basically as a mature student. You can take a couple of classes, like 40% of the caseload yeah. or class load. At least in 94, it worked this way. I have no idea how it works now. And uh, I got very good marks. I had basically a perfect GPA wow. over two years. And so I got into, into law school after that. So not only do I not have a high school diploma, I don't have an undergrad either. <laughs> uh, because my only goal in, I took philosophy and political science and things like that, mm. things I liked, but I only did it to get into law school. I had no interest in, I don't even know what you do with a political science degree. It seems completely useless to me. But uh, so any potential clients listening to that have a political science degree, uh, your income loss is not going to be significant. <laughs> <laughs> and any defense lawyers, earmuffs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can ignore that part. And I don't think this is admissible anyway. <laughs> so I, I did that. And uh, I applied the first year after my first year at Laurier uh, to various law schools. At the time, it didn't work like I understand it does now, where you put in one application that goes everywhere. Sure. You had to yeah. pick. I think I applied to Western and Windsor. And I didn't get, I wasn't expecting the first year to get in and I didn't. And then I kept going uh, to Laurier and I did a bit of tutoring for a lot of math challenge people. I did that. And uh finished the second year and I had the same grade point and then I got in after that. Wow. So I, I didn't want to finish the degree. I remember one of my professors convincing or trying to convince me to finish the degree and I thought, mm. you know, I like the education. I love learning things. But uh, my point is I'm already 28 at the time and I want to be a lawyer. Right. This is the only reason for going through this exercise. Otherwise, so how, no did you, how did you know? So when you first applied to, and you were at Laurier, what was it about law that drew you? Um, one of my earliest childhood memories is watching Perry Mason on the couch with my mother in the early 70s. Would have been reruns by that point. And I, it, there are nights I can remember getting up and I couldn't sleep and I'd go out and find my mom. And I would sit on the couch with my mother and watch Perry Mason. I always thought he was kind of cool. Yeah. Kind of seemed to me like lawyers ran the world. So I figured, yeah, I, I want to be part of that group. I always right. wanted to. And I always found it interesting. I like the mental challenge of it. I didn't want to do anything that uh, I thought was boring. Mm. I mean, the fact you can make a good living at it was kind of a bonus for me. But I just wanted to do something that, you know, had some mental challenges. It, uh, you know, it could have been that. It could have been uh, physics of some sort or something like that. Right. But uh, 
I seem more suited to to doing law. I mean, I had some of the skill sets already. Uh, I'm not talking when I was a young child, but when after spending at least at the time a third of my adult life on stage in front of people and learning how to present things and learning how to structure things, I would do it in music before and now I do it with words and argument. Right. But it's a similar skill set. And yeah. plus I always enjoyed it. I always thought it was uh was interesting. I would read about uh, legal things and uh a lot of constitutional law, even before I went to law school, I just found it interesting. Cool. Yeah, it's interesting that you said that in terms of being on stage, because I remember when I first started at the firm, uh, you had recently gone to go see Jim Jeffries, a comedian, and your takeaway was that was a blast and you laughed your head off for the entire show, but you learned, you know, his stage presence and his, the way that he, um, you know, intends to prepare his show so that he leads from one thing to the next and everything builds and references back. So you took from that, you know, this is how I could deliver you know, my opening statement or my closing statement or how I'd prepare my cross-examination. So it's funny how everything kind of interrelates. Well, it does in terms of the skill set. For I, I watch a lot of stand-up comedy and listen mm-hmm. to a lot because, again, the material is obviously not of any use to us mm-hmm. in terms of uh, what they're talking about. And that part really doesn't matter. But the skill set is in the presentation and in telling a story and doing things like callbacks to prior jokes mm-hmm. and uh, the way learning how people will structure it so they can speak for 90 minutes without a single note. Now, a lot of it's free form and what they have in their heads are, and I try to do this when I'm doing openings, is uh, I don't write it out full form. I I just write out my beats. That's a term I learned from listening to stand-up comics being interviewed. Mm -hmm. And that's just, what's the point you want to make uh, out of all of this? And then talk around it. You know it. Uh, You don't have to write out every phrase. Just write out your beats. Now you've got your order in your head. And so I take a lot of, it's more inspiration than anything else, watching somebody who's so good at that, whether or not the subject matter is something you like or not, but they're so good at telling a story. And you can pick up little bits and pieces, perhaps their mannerisms, the way they, the way they change the inflection in their voice, and also understanding this. Silence is fine. You don't need to have an um and an ah at every spot. So hopefully when Andy listens to this back again, there aren't too many ums or ahs, but I don't think there will. And I learned that over the years of think about what you want to say and go ahead with it. Even if it's at some point, if you forget where you are, just stop and say, I forgot where I am. Let's go back to where we were and we'll catch everybody up. We'll, we'll catch up together. Where would you say that? That would be in a trial. You would say that? Sure. During- it's a lot better than, uh, well, look, it's not, a, it's not the best outcome, of course. You don't ever want to do that. But it's a lot better than standing up there looking disorganized and ums and ahs as you go through your notes trying to figure out where you are. Just say it hmm. um, and move on. Yeah, that's, I mean, Charles and I are, as younger lawyers, I think that's a huge point to be comfortable with the silences. And it's okay to stand there and and be comfortable in that silence and not say, mm, and ah, and I, for one, I really struggle with that. So it's something that I'm actively working on as I prepare, you know, mediation openings or, or hopefully one day to deliver an opening at a trial. Yeah. So let's, uh, carry on on that note. I understand that you're currently preparing for trial. Yeah. So what is the first thing that you do when you, you've got a case and you're, you know, say you're six months out or you're three months out, what is the first thing that you do when you start to prepare for trial? <coughs> well, I'm not going to start preparing that soon, but Getting in closer to it, um, I'll just go back to the beginning and reread everything. The raw stuff. I might read a 
mediation or a pretrial memo to give me uh, some greater context. And then I go back and I read the transcripts and I read the clinical notes and I read the expert reports, whatever else happens to be in there. I make sure I understand what all the photos are depicting and what it means and, and I have a good grasp on it. And then the next thing I do is write the opening because that gives me an idea of what I, where the holes I need to fill in in the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I map it all out. Again, with the opening, it's not a, a written document that might make a lot of sense to other people reading it. It's a bunch of fragments and sentences and half sentences and bullet points. It's just my beats, and then I you know, put in the photos and whatever exhibits I want, so I see the order. And once I'm done that, then I sort of step back and, okay, where am I going to fill in the evidence? It leads me to all the, the witnesses. And, and that process also helps me decide who I'm calling, who I'm not calling, mm-hmm. What are the key things I need to get out of the plaintiff other than the obvious and, and what do I have to address? Are you putting that in charts of any kind or is that all sort of like mental notes that you're just making for yourself as you're going through this process? In terms of the opening? Well, uh, making notes of, you know, maybe key things from clinical notes and records or, you know, certain de- demonstrative evidence you want to use. Are you putting that in a chart anywhere? or? No, I don't do that in my initial review. I, I've got a fairly good memory, mm. uh, shockingly enough. Um for law, for nothing else, it would seem. But the first review is to give me a feel of it. Right. Um, I, the one I'm doing now, I didn't make any notes. I just read everything. I may have highlighted a few things, as you know, we can do in prime effect. And then if I have to go, I'm no, I know I've got to go back to this again when I'm writing the part about surveillance, for mm-hmm. example. I'll go back to that again, so I'll highlight as I'm going through, but I tend not to take notes. I'm really just trying to get an overall feel for what the whole case is about. What, Because most cases are, you could summarize pretty quickly. It's a slip and fall. A guy had serious premorbid issues and the impairment arising out of it is not that bad now. Mm-hmm. I've got an idea. i got to fill in the blanks. That's not obviously my whole case, but it gives me an idea of where I'm going. Is this when you're starting to develop the theme uh, yeah. of your case as well? Yeah. Yeah, I know it is. It's when you're starting to think about if my daughter, who's 23, asked me what the case is about, what would I tell her? That's generally my theme. Mm-hmm. Or anybody, anybody. I used to use mother, but my mother's passed, so I got to use somebody else now. But when I understand it well enough that I can say in 25 seconds of speaking what the case is about and encapsulate that, then I understand it. Right. Until then, I don't. And, and for, for listeners who may not be um, as familiar with jury trials, why do you think that's important, kind of distilling it into simple terms? Because if you don't, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. That's why. Because you both are, how old are you? Uh, I'm 30. 31. 30. So you were about six years old when that happened, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. And that's not because you're lawyers. It's because that was such a great theme that you remember that 25 years ago and he was acquitted. And for anyone who is younger than 30 or 31, (laughs) that's the O.J. Simpson Simpson. trial. They can just Google it. They'll be fine. (laughs) Johnny Cochran. Johnny Cochran. Um, Yeah. And the point is not obviously to, uh, he was obviously guilty, but that's not the point. The point is that's why a theme is so important. Mm -hmm. Now, Coming up with something that is pithy like that in rhymes rarely happens. But giving people an idea of what the case is about in a sentence. So hopefully a juror goes home and tells their spouse, what's the case you got called on jury duty? I see you couldn't get out of it. Well, it's about, and that's what you want them to repeat. Right. 
And so are you using that theme in your opening? You're yes. calling back to that at every opportunity that you can. Not a lot. I don't like to call back to it a lot because I don't also want it to become a punchline. Mm. Um, so how do you reconcile those two things? On one hand, you have, if it don't fit, you must acquit. That's a punchline in my mind. But it's also... For, well, we have the benefit of hindsight here. Right. Um, it's been almost 30 years, or no, 26, 27 years. It's become a punchline since. Go back and look at the originals. I think you might find it was uttered four or five times in the closing. Is that all? Yeah. Hmm. It was in Johnny Cochran's closing, closing, and he did say it. But prior to that, I don't think it was ever said. I don't think it was said in the opening because as I understand the story, uh, somebody came up with it during the course of the I trial. I think it was a mid-trial strategy. Yeah. Have you seen the five-part ESPN series on that? No. Oh my God, it's amazing. It's called, I think it's Made in America, the O.J. Simpson series. It's unbelievable. It's all the live footage that was actually taken during the trial with Justice Ito, I think was the trial judge. and mm. like. Justice Lance Ito. See, I'm old enough that I watched it live on CNN as it was happening. Right from the Bronco chase all the way to the Bronco. I remember why. It's weird. It's it's not like it's a Kennedy assassination, but I was working the night of the Bronco chase. I used to do sound at a club down in Tilsonburg when I was uh, I was not in law school at the time. I was going to Laurie undergrad and uh, I was working and then I watched the whole thing. Uh, you know, when I wasn't in class, I'd be watching on CNN Cool. because there's a lot of stuff in that trial that is just a perfect demonstration of outstanding trial lawyers. Right. Regardless of what you think about that part doesn't matter. But right. uh, Barry Sheck, who did the cross-examination of most of the science people, is a brilliant lawyer. He tore apart these people to the point... I would get calls from friends of mine who have no connection with the law and go, is this witness really that dumb or is that guy that good? And I'm going, well, it's kind of both. Right. And the closings, I mean, um, say what you will about uh, Johnny Cochran. That guy was an outstanding lawyer. I mean, in the 70s and 80s, that guy was the king of tort law in Los Angeles suing the police. I mean, he was was the definition of a heavy hitter. And uh, criminal was something that he did on the side. And that's how good he was. He could step in on a trial like this. And F. Lee Bailey, another legend. Mm-hmm. Um, Barry Sheck, not as much a legend, but he certainly is now. But at the right. time. I so mean, these are three criminal defense lawyers that were all representing O.J. in the trial. Yeah, and there were more too. Yeah. Uh, but those were the prominent ones. And uh, if you want to get an idea, one, it was a great civics lesson on how trials work because it did work like that. And again, I'm not advocating the outcome. I don't care one way or the other. Sure. Mm-hmm. But it's... Uh, how it was managed and how they ran that trial and how good the cross-examinations were. Um, I mean, it's a lesson for anybody who wants to do this. You watch Johnny Cochran do an opening and a closing. Right. It doesn't get a lot better than that. F. Lee Bailey cross-examining, uh, Barry Sheck cross-examining, cool. Johnny Cochran. Yeah. I, mean, I think was, they, were, they were called the dream team or something like well, that. Well, they were at the time, but that's a media thing. I mean, they were just good lawyers. Like right. They were real lawyers. They got a little bit of what they had, in my view, has been tarnished. Bob Kardashian hmm. was a fine Los Angeles... I wouldn't call him a trial lawyer, but he was a prominent figure in the legal circles out there in one of the biggest legal markets in the U.S. He was one of the top dogs, and now all people remember is because of his idiot daughters. Right. So they got tarnished a bit because of that, and and so did Johnny Cochran's reputation in some quarters, for sure. I mean, that was controversial, but they took it on. Picking up on what you said about uh, cross-examination of witnesses, and you said that it's not often that you'll see a a witness get totally eviscerated like that in a normal trial. 
Um, how do you prepare witnesses when you're um, preparing for a trial that you're, you're going to take? Where it do you really, start? It really depends. Well, where you start is understanding everything that he's going to say and knowing it cold and where it is. You can't begin to do that. Now, there will be surprises because they may some, say something at trial you don't expect. Hard to plan for that. But the way to plan for that is to know everything that person, you know, defense expert, for example. You have to know the report inside and out. You have to know in your head the page reference where they said that the person's uh, shoulder was fine, but the back was uh, uh, not uh, working well, or their premorbid condition was A, B, C, and D. Whatever it happens to be, you have to know where it is without going, you can't be leafing through the report in the middle of a cross. Where did you say that, doctor? Mm. That's where it starts. Now, where it ends up, hard to know because it depends on the witness. Uh, the last time I had an extensive cross-examination of a medical witness was in a trial Jim and I did with a, a brain-injured fellow who, he was 51 at the time, I think. He had the intellect of a five-year-old, basically. Wow. And it was a serious brain injury, no liability issues. He was a passenger. It never should have went to trial, but it did. Right. And their defense doctor, a doctor, he's a good doctor. Yep. Don't normally see him, or, or he isn't one of those people who always struck me as being a defense hack or a plaintiff's hack for that matter. It just didn't seem partisan. And he got given material on this. And basically their theory of the case was our guy was an alcoholic before, and he was. Mm. He was one of those guys you would run into who always had the beer in his hand. No matter what time of day it was, always had the beer in his hand. Yeah. But he was pretty functional. Like his wife worked, he took care of the kids. And what Dr. <laughs> didn't know, for example, was one, his daughter... RCMP officer and his son, this is going back to 2010, but mm -hmm. he did the red mitten campaign for the Vancouver Olympics worldwide oh. uh, uh, media marketing. Yeah. He was the head of that. Is that right? Pretty successful kids, yeah. and he was the guy who took care of him. The doctor didn't know that my guy's next door neighbor was uh, an MP who had won the Canadian version of the Medal of Honor. I can't remember wow. what it is. And uh, he would let Larry babysit his kids. And their theory of the case was he was an alcoholic. He needed 24-hour care anyway. Pretty high functioning. He was pretty high functioning. We had some good evidence. Again. And the yeah. problem was he didn't know about it. And so I got to go through every witness with him, about 15 of them, and uh, just make him look completely ridiculous because he didn't know all this stuff. And I would go back every time to his conclusion, but yet you think he was an alcoholic before and, and could take care of himself. Well, sir, do you think a Medal of Honor recipient would let let him take care of a two-year-old if he was a problem. Mm. They're pretty observant, aren't they? And the point of that story is you you have to, there's no such thing as here's the way to prepare for a cross-examination, at least not mm. that I've ever learned. I don't know how to do that other than figure out what's the theme of your case because the most important thing you're doing is not to get them to change their opinion. Unlikely that's going to happen because right. even in this case where I destroyed the man, he didn't change his opinion. He right. couldn't. I got to tell the story of the case through the questions. I don't care what the answers are, almost always. Because if you start to f debate an orthopedic surgeon on orthopedics, you're probably going to look like an idiot. Mm. It's not going to go well. But if you undermine his factual opinion, um, I'm not much for asking the question, uh, you're getting paid to be here and you work for defense lawyers all the time. I think that's nonsense because the only people who aren't getting paid to be here are the jurors. <laughs> I don't think that works. But if you can undermine their opinion or get them to make some admissions that they really don't know something or that something is possible, that's almost as far as you're going to get. Right. But you're asking the question, you're hoping the jury listens to the question, not the answer. 
you don't really want to put yourself in a position where you're fighting over what is a, you know, some causation issue arising out of mm-hmm. some orthopedic injury because you're going to look silly, I think, most of the time. Right, right. Unless you happen to be right and your expert tells you, no, this guy's totally wrong. Yeah, yeah. But then I'm going to have the expert write me some questions. Right, I, right. I don't know. I don't know the science. I only learn enough of what I need to know for that group of questions and then I know nothing else about it. But right. I can make it sound for four minutes like I know what I'm talking about. And so what about, so that's how you prepare for a cross-examination. How do you prepare your own witnesses, whether they're expert witnesses or, or healthcare providers who are you know, treating witnesses? I give them as best I can an idea of what I think they're going to be asked about and I try to get a sense of what their answer is going to be. That's about all you could do. I mean, it's, there's more to it than that depending on what the issue is. But it's always the same process. I don't know how to answer it like with a specific witness. If it's the client, I'm going to be reminding him about, and I do this before discoveries as well, reminding him about all the times he went to see a doctor. You were here on this date, you complained of this, and this date complained of this. I can't control what he's going to say, but I can at least control that he won't be surprised by it. And I try to do that with all the witnesses. Right. More just make sure they're not surprised than anything else then because obviously I can't tell people what to say the evidence is what it is I can tell them look you don't have to agree with the guy if you don't want to or the or, you know the person asking the questions but it's really just preparing them in the sense of not being surprised and then addressing any particular issues that are in your case if there's surveillance go over it with them show maybe even show it to them in the direct so they don't get crossed about it because there's a lot of stuff you can avoid cross-examination if you inoculate correctly at the beginning that was going to be my next question. So back to your back to your trial preparation overall. Are you when you're writing your opening, are you almost more mindful of the bad facts than you are of the good ones and you're you're really making sure that you're finding a way to weave them in so that you are addressing them head on? I wouldn't say more, but certainly as much as. Yeah. The bad facts will even be more harmful if you don't say them. I don't care what it is. It, it could be a minor back problem the person had three years before, but they never went to visit a doctor in the three years up to your, your incident. And perhaps they were working full-time at a heavy job. But if I leave that out, it takes on a life of its own, as opposed to saying, I expect you're going to hear that he went to the doctor three times in 2015 for a back problem. Well, I also expect he's going to tell you that he never went back to the doctor for that. And then I can't argue it, of course, in the opening, but my next thought is probably going to be telling the jury about something heavy he did during that period. Mm-hmm. I'm going to let them go to the inference of, well, that couldn't have been that big of a problem because he was doing these lifting weights or whatever it is the guy's doing, uh, the client's doing. I'm going to remind them about that. And hopefully then the inference pops into their head. Well, it couldn't be that bad. I can go ahead. Now, if I leave that out, even though it's uh, nothing, if I leave it out, the defense lawyer, well, let, let me tell you, Mr. Cameron told you all about this, but what he forgot to tell you was mm-hmm. anything that follows that sentence in a defense lawyer's opening is bad news. I don't care what it is. It's bad news. You may as well get it up out front because you're going to reserve what little credibility you may have if you have a bad case with a lot of stuff. Oh, maybe they're not going to believe you. Maybe you're not, but you don't do it by leaving things out. any recent trial stories all your preparation comes together and uh, you finally get to go and you, you deliver your opening you call that first witness no usually what happens is i write the opening and then the defense lawyer calls me and they settle <laughs> it drives right. me out of my mind i i have a i don't know it's just bad luck it seems to happen after i'm done the opening 
Um, and then I'll get the call. I mean, I'm kind of expecting to happen for this one. It's supposed to start Monday, you know, judge being available in Toronto, mm. it, it, depending on that. You know, I'm negotiating a Mary Carter with one of them, and uh, we'll see how that goes. It probably should end up, but it's uh, not a significant amount of money. But I, uh, that's the biggest problem I have is we will get ready, and then the client will pull, uh, you know, pull the ripcord, or the defense lawyer will call and, you know, the last two times, the last sittings and this sitting now, uh, May of May of 19, I just finished the opening for a case I took over from Adam because he was trying a med mal case. And uh, I, I'm not kidding. When I say I finished the opening, I got a call from uh, the defense lawyer the next morning. Oh. And I was like, the opening was 135 pages. Now, oh. keep in mind, the font's a little bit bigger because I'm old and I can't see that well. <laughs> uh, but it was still a good a deal of, of work. It was... Must have been twenty five or thirty hours at work. Yeah, wow. uh, to get it all together because that was even worse because that was not my case. I didn't even know it at all till right. I picked it up. So I had to read read everything. So it was awful. Yeah. So that's the biggest. You know, it just drives me crazy. You get yeah. ready for them, but then again, if you get a good number for a client at the end of the day, that's good. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'd rather go ahead. Right. Yeah, at least in many of them. Some of them you don't want to, but um, you know, in many of them I do. Yeah. So outside of trial, what are what are your favorite litigation events? You mean the, the social kind of events or what are you talking about? No, I meant, so, I mean, 99 or 98% of our files don't end up in a trial. Oh, I see what you're saying. So outside of that, what do you, mo- you know, is it a, a mediation, is it a pretrial, is it a discovery with a difficult defendant? What are you most uh, fired up about, for lack of a better well, term? Probably the mediations. I mean, that's the chance to, you know, it's the live version of game theory. There's an opening. Uh, there's dealing with problems as they arise on the fly. I mean, that's the most fun in terms of uh, the litigation process. Uh, you know, occasionally you get an interesting motion, you can argue, summary judgment motion or something like that. Uh, but I would say mediations and pretrials because it's where you're doing the non-trial lawyer mm-hmm. or, or where you're displaying the non-trial lawyer skills. It's where you're doing the negotiating and trying to come up with a with a good deal for your client and one that's actually a good deal for the defendant too, because if they don't think it's a good deal, they're not going to do it. Right. Uh, so I, th- I think that's probably the one that's uh, the most fun discoveries. Pretty rare. You get one that's actually fun with the defendant. It's fairly straightforward normally. And I, I've got a touch of the ADD. I don't like sitting through long discoveries. I get bored because I get these repetitive nonsensical questions, but they're just, just enough that I can't object to them because when you read back, you know, the transcript later, it's going to look fine in paper, but it's so annoying to sit in the room. Right. So I don't care for that too much, but. You've got a, um, I don't know, I wouldn't say like a reputation, but when you go to mediation, I've heard that you like to keep it pithy and short and concise. Yes. Your, your openings. Is there a reason why you do that? Or can you tell, tell us why you might want to keep it shorter than longer? The longer anybody has to argue about the point, the less likely they are, it is that they're right. That's just my general view of life. If I have to hear my daughter go on about how much she wants something, I know it's nonsense. If you can't, in a mediation setting, keeping in mind you've given them your brief, they know all about your lay witnesses, your expert, they know what the accountant says, they know all that, you you maybe have a chart of damages in a bigger case. Mm -hmm. I'm presuming they've read it. Maybe sometimes they don't. I don't know. I don't care. If you can't summarize it in three minutes, uh, you don't know your case well enough to really proceed. Just get to the point. You're not reviewing every lay witness. You might be saying, you've read all the lay witnesses. They're all supportive. The jury's going to love these people. Mm. 
say that as opposed to reviewing your six lay witnesses that the jury's going to love. They know what it is. Just get to the point. Keep it short. Uh, I don't think the defense lawyers uh, really put much stock in time. Mm. That is, I could spend 40 minutes. I'm not sure I'd be any more any more ahead than had I stopped speaking at three minutes. As long as I plan to speak three minutes. You can't just stop at three minutes, of course. You, right. You've gotten nowhere. But I tell people, I start at the outset, I go, look, I'm going to be brief. And occasionally, if it's a mediator, defense lawyer, I know well, I might even make a joke of it and say, Cliff, time me. Let's see me see if I can get this done in under three minutes. And let's get to this. And that, the great part about that, it usually prompts them to go shorter, too. Because right. they don't want to ramble. And I don't want to sit there. It drives me nuts. Right. Half of what they say is nonsense. Yeah. And uh, I got to sit there and pretend I'm typing so they don't. I don't care what they think I'm talking about. And I tell the client... <laughs> I mean, I tell the client this ahead of time. Say, look, I'm not going to listen. Sure. I, I mean, I'm going to listen, but I'm going to make it look like I'm not listening. I'm going to type. I'm going to do emails. But I know what they're going to say already. And right. they're going to say, oh, you're going to lose your house, blah, blah, blah. Here, read the memo. It's, it's all the same. I, I attended a mediation with Roger uh, once. And uh, during the defendant's uh, lawyer's opening, he was just looking down at his Blackberry. I wasn't really sure if he was actually looking down at it or a strategy, but he certainly didn't look like he was paying attention. No, I, he wasn't. And I, I can tell this story because Roger's told it before in public, but he, him and Durante were doing a trial years ago. And Durante at the time, Rob, uh, was he was quite junior as well. And uh, Roger's on, he was one of the first, one of the first people I have a Blackberry. He's very early on. And he's in trial on his Blackberry and he's not paying attention to all. Somebody's being cross-examined. Rob's listening. Mm-hmm. And Rob's not objecting, or uh, Roger's not objecting to something. And Rob thought, well, you shouldn't be objecting. What are you doing? He doesn't think anything about it. And then there are a couple more questions. I don't know what the questions were, but but finally Rob leads over to Roger and goes, You gotta you gotta object, Roger, you gotta object. So Roger immediately just stands up and says, I object, Your Honor. And the judge says, Well, object to what? And Roger goes, Oh, the usual things. And it was sustained. Like only Roger gets away with that. <laughs> because Roger had no idea what was going on. He didn't care. Rob was listening. Uh, was fine. It didn't matter. And, uh, you know, had Roger not told that story in public before, I wouldn't have told it. But it's a funny story. Oh, that's great. And, uh, you know, it happens. Look, sometimes you just a, a long time of listening and you lose track for a few minutes, especially sure. with mm-hmm. phones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to, you know, that's obviously not a, a recommended way. But if Roger <laughs> Oatley, you can get away with that. Yes, you, you can. You know, none of us are going to get away with that. The just next question out of the judge mouth of I, I said that would have been, yeah, I, what does that mean? Right. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a great uh, segue to my next question, which is, you know, you're not a Roger Oatley, but you're certainly, you've been doing this a lot longer than Charles and I have. So do you remember what it was like to start out from a junior lawyer mm-hmm. and to get to where you're at now? And, and how has your practice evolved in the way that you think about your obligations to your clients and the bar o- overall? Well, I think my obligation is the client. I don't think about that any differently. I mean, I have more control over what's going to happen now, and my my interaction with the client is different. But I will say it's a lot less now than it was before, mm-hmm. because I have younger lawyers that work with me that handle the day to day, just like you guys do for Rob and Troy, and it's like I did fifteen years ago or whenever it was. I don't know how it, it doesn't feel any different to me. I mean, this sounds weird, but I don't feel any different than I did when I first started, except that I have probably more confidence in what I'm doing and I don't have to look up the answers. I mean, I used to think it was really funny that Vigman didn't know how to use uh, a quick law we used at the time. He had no clue. And then I find myself, I don't know how to use Westlaw. 
So I don't know when that happened. And I, I'm not quite sure when I became the, uh, the older one of the senior guys. I don't know how that happened. But I remember being in a CLE with you guys and, there, you know, most of the other associates were there. And I think Karen was talking and I was sitting at the end. I was the only partner that was there. They just scheduling, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it dawned on me about halfway through this. Well, wait a minute. I'm the old guy in the room. Because you never had that before. No, because I, I don't feel like the old guy. I feel right. like it, I don't feel any different than I did when I was 19. Right. I mean, I understand I look different. I mean, I'm not delusional, but yeah. I don't feel any different. So I don't I don't have any different sense of I've never thought myself of myself as a senior lawyer and I still mm. don't. I think I'm good at this, uh, but I've never thought my, of myself like when I used to look at Roger and Jim, I used to see this big senior lawyer, you know, knows everything. Mm -hmm. That's what I would see from being a third year lawyer or an articling student mm -hmm. or something. That's what I would see. But now, I th as I understand it, factually at least, I'm in that role. I don't feel anything like that. My guess is they neither did they. However, uh, it just, uh, you guys will get this in about 15 years, right? Because yeah. then you're going to be the old dude and somebody else is going to be asking you, you know, a question and uh, you're going to have your own doubts in your mind that you're not going to share with them. You're just going to tell them this is, you think the best course and you will hope inside that it is. Wow. Yeah. I think I've experienced that in like a much smaller setting where I remember being an articling student and I would, you know, go speak to a senior associate about, you know, a course of action or how to phrase something, you know, you're arguing over undertakings and they would say, Oh, I would probably do it like this. And you'd say, wow, how are you so confident in, in just making that recommendation? You don't even know anything about the file or anything like that. But, uh, now I'm in that boat where the articling students or even, you know, more junior associates would come and ask me a question. And there I am just giving answers. Like I've been doing it for, for decades already, but yeah, it's the same thing. It's just more issues. Like now I can, I can get ready for a, what I would call a straight ahead mediation, like a typical one in our office in about a half an hour, mm. because I know exactly what's going to happen. I've done hundreds of them. I know how it's going to go. I know the information I need at my fingertips. I, I've created myself a template for something called a one sheet that has all the information I need to look at in one glance. Mm. Like I don't have all these extensive notes. I just have, this is the one glance. I know the interest level or the interest rate. I know uh, who the defense lawyers are in case I know. Uh, client names, date of the crash, the media, you know, that sort of thing. The yeah. one, the rest uh, is the same. It just changes for cases. And after you do it for years, you can be more, you don't have to spend as much time getting ready for this one because you've got the prep that you did in the previous 270 or whatever the number is. Okay, and don't forget to uh, leave a comment and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we have an account on Twitter at Exhibit A-E-H pod. Um, you can visit us on our website at olivigment.com. Again, my name is Charles, my co-host Harrison, signing off. See you next episode.